All right. Uh, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 3. And we're in verse 16. Yeah, we stopped at we stopped at fifteen. Does anyone want to read sixteen to the end? Go for it. All right, go for it. As for the appearance of the wills and their construction, their appearance was like the gleaming of barrel. Three? Yeah. Oh, three sixteen. Sorry, I wasn't. Yeah, I was like. Oh, yeah, Ezekiel three sixteen. And at the end of seven days, the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak, no, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hands. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness, or from his wicked way, he shall die for his iniquity, and you will have delivered your soul. Again, if you are a righteous person, if a righteous person turns from his righteousness and commits injustice, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. Because you have not warned him, he shall die for his sin, and his righteous deeds that he has done shall not be remembered, but his blood I will require of your hand. But if you warn the righteous person not to sin, he does not sin, he shall surely live. Because he took warning, and you will have delivered yourselves. And the Lord, and the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, Arise. Actually, let's let's uh, let's stop right here. Okay, so um, <clears throat> son of man means what? Son of Adam? Yeah, human or mortal. And what does God make him in this chapter? What does He say He's making him? What is the purpose of a watchman? Yeah, he's like, so he's watching for oncoming armies or whatever, you know, impending danger, that sort of thing. And he is to then warn the city when he sees, you know, people coming or what have you. How is Ezekiel a watchman? You see God's coming judgment and he's warning them. Right. So God's coming judgment upon their sin, right? Um, what will happen to the person who is sinning if Ezekiel does not warn him? Okay. That phrase, I will require the blood from your hand, is a phrase that is uh, a reference to murderers. Uh, murderers shed innocent blood. Murderers have blood on their hands. If you remember, with the, even in the New Testament with Pilate, right? He washes his hands of the blood of Jesus. So the idea is that Ezekiel will be responsible for murder if he doesn't warn someone of their sin when he knows that God is going to judge them for their sin, right? This is, I think, maybe shocking to some people because Ezekiel didn't murder the man. Ezekiel didn't do anything active to the man. He just didn't do something. He didn't warn him. Um, 
let's first apply it. You know, Ezekiel obviously needs to warn them as individuals. Let's now apply it to pastors who don't want to preach in a way that might warn people of judgment. They don't want to talk about sin so much. You never hear, hear about hell anymore. What do you think God will require of them on judgment day? Do you think that they are obligated like Ezekiel was, or is that just for the prophet and it's not really for pastors? Like, can we apply it? It's called the watchman. You guys are watchmen. Like shepherds in the same way you look after your flock. Yeah, isn't, aren't the elders in a, in a prophetic role? I mean, they don't receive revelation from God, but they, are certain, they have revelation in the scripture, and they're speaking it forth. So they know that there's judgment coming upon sin according to the scripture, and therefore they have the re- revelation from God here. Should they not actually speak it? Um, are they false prophets who don't speak it? Probably, right? So what I, the reason why I say that is I want you to realize that a false prophet is not just someone who's like, hey, don't believe in the Trinity. Or, uh, hey, yeah, we're all going to be gods and go to, you know, have our own spirit planet or whatever. Or not spirit planet, but our own planet. Um, someone who's a false prophet can just be someone who withholds the whole counsel of God and doesn't teach it. And that is probably at least half the churches out there, at least in Vegas, if not in America in general. Brian, how do you, how do you think about the difference between preaching generically repentance to a group versus seeing sin in an individual? Yeah. And calling out sin in an individual. Because it seems like a lot of pastors are fine saying, you know, preaching generically from the pulpit on yeah. sin, but then won't confront an individual on sin. If Ezekiel just said, you know, wandered the streets and said, repent, but then he saw a guy that was in sin and would it confront him individually, is the curse still on him? I don't know if this is, so even though the individuals are being spoken of, I don't know if Ezekiel's job is to know the sin of everyone in the city and sure, then go individually. He, but if he sees the sin. Yeah, but he, if he runs across. That's what I wanted. Actually, I wanted to, I wanted to link into that because if pastors, <laughs> if pastors do preach the truth to the larger community, now who's responsible? Just the pastor? Right. So it's not enough to be like, oh, you know what? The pastor needs to rebuke people for their sin. No, the pastor's going to give you the general truth into the community. As a Christian, he still needs to rebuke fellow Christians. But guess what? Everyone in the community who knows that truth is now responsible. And if you don't do it, what does God think of you? You're a murderer, and you'll have that judgment placed upon you. You have the responsibility to take the truth that you hear... And to encourage one another in it, counsel one another in it, and to rebuke one another in it and warn one another. And if you fail to do that, then you are a murderer just as much as Ezekiel would be a murderer or a pastor who doesn't preach the whole truth is a murderer. So it's a serious thing. It's not just, oh, well, I'm just not good at that. And yeah, no one's good at it because it's offensive. No one wants to tell someone else, hey, you might be in sin. No one wants, no one wants to talk about sin. Um, it's uncomfortable. Everyone's going to view you as a jerk, self-righteous, all that stuff. Nobody wants to hear that. No one wants to be viewed that way. But I want you to think about, like, what's worse? 
To be viewed that by, way by people or to be viewed as a murderer by God. So he's, God's not playing around. He want, he, when he tells truth to his prophets and by virtue of then through the prophets to the people. Because look, this is being written down. Let's remind ourselves. Why is this being written down? So Ezekiel can remember it? No. So Israel, even at the time, can remember it? No. It's being written down for Israel in the future, including the church. Which is why Peter says these things have been written down for us. So it's not just for Ezekiel. It actually is for us. And it becomes a serious thing. It's not a game to learn the truth and then be like, well, you know, I just don't feel like... I know they're in sin, but I feel uncomfortable rebuking them for that sin. Now, on the converse side, that also means to take Jeff's message from Sunday is that you need to be humble and receive a rebuke. We should not be a community where people are afraid to say something to you because you're going to judge them as somehow self-righteous and blah, 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 legalistic, all that sort of nonsense. Look, here's, here's how you receive a rebuke. Always assume what the person is saying has some sort of truth to it, maybe. Maybe they're saying something that's true. Maybe the whole thing isn't true, uh, you know, but maybe part of it is, and they're seeing something. Take it that way. Uh, and, and ask yourself, you know, what is God trying to teach you? Don't put it on the person. They're just a messenger. Maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong, but maybe they've called you to aside because God wants to say something to you. So take it as God's word, as the very oracles of God, as Peter would say. So it's a serious crime. He says to Ezekiel, look, uh, the guy who sins, if you don't rebuke him, he's going to die, but now you're going to die too. I'm going to require the blood from his hands. I'm going to kill you as well, because that's what murderers should get, execution. Now, if you tell the guy and he continues to sin, that's no longer on you. You're free from it. You've done your job. Uh, you've done what you should have. And in fact, that's what Ezekiel is going to do, right? God's telling him, no one's going to listen to you. I mean, there's some people who will listen to him, but for the most part, they won't. But you've done your job then. And so it's off of you. Same thing with the righteous man. I want you to notice what it says about the righteous man. So let's actually move into that for a minute. The righteous man, if he turns from his righteousness and does sin, God says his, his righteousness will be remembered no more. We tend to think that we have some sort of credit with God because we've lived a certain way. Because we've lived righteously I'm allowed to like, you know, I dieted through the week, so now I can eat a chocolate cake at the end. It's kind of that mentality, right? I've lived righteous during the week, so uh, it's all right. I can kind of sin a little bit here. It's okay because I have all this credit. God says, that's ridiculous. You have no credit. If you have sinned, if you turn in rebellion from me, then that's it. I will not even remember anything you did before. You are a wicked person and you will die for that sin. Now, there's the positive of if the righteous man then hears the rebuke, he turns, and you've, as the New Testament says, you've won your brother, right? That's what we're going for. We're not really going to condemn people. We're going to, like, win our brother to save them from this death um, that their sin is bringing on them. So it's out of love that we're doing it. Now, if you are going to rebuke someone, make sure that's true. Rebuke people out of love, not just because you're a jerk. But 
for the most part, most people aren't jerks, right? Most people don't want to rebuke people. I know people who are jerks who don't even want to rebuke people because of the way that they're going to be perceived. Really, not wanting to rebuke someone when God, you know God wants you to rebuke someone for sin is narcissism. You are in love with yourself and more concerned about how you will be perceived than you are about the soul of this person who is going to go to hell. You love yourself more than God who would be glorified if you speak the truth to that person. But you, you seek your own glory and your own pride and so you don't want people to, to think unwell of you. It's wicked. It's self-worship and we need to be ready to rebuke people in the truth out of love. Because we love others more and we love God more than ourselves. Any questions on that? Any, any comments on that? Any examples or anything? Pretty clear. Yeah. I have an example. Yeah. I'm not meaning to pat myself on the back. You're about to rebuke me for something. <laughs> well, I receive it, Drake. <laughs> that was easy. That was the easiest rebuke I've ever done. Um, you just think you're so great. <laughs> Churchy church boy. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that is how people respond. Really good, Brian. <laughs> I've, yeah, I've gotten it so much. It's like, oh, you're just so good. Don't you just know everything? I, mean, I, I get that so much. <laughs> he didn't respond that way, but oh, he good. might have behind my back. <laughs> um, so uh, it was a guy I fly with pretty often. Uh, older guy, uh, divorced with a, with a child, and uh, I, I, he must forget. I hate to, he must forget I'm a Christian because. I guarantee he would tell me the stories if he if he remembered. And I, I guess he probably forgot this day. And he was telling me about this relationship he was having the flight attendant, uh, who's oh, there's another pilot. I take it. Yeah, uh, who's also married but getting a divorce, but still lives with her husband, and he's pursuing her. And one of this encounter, one of these encounters, the soon to be ex husband was there. It was it turned into a real. I'm sitting there thinking, like, I can't, man, I can't, I can't let this go. I gotta, I gotta get in there and say, like, dude, because he confessed to be a believer as well. Yeah. There's the, the foundation side and like that. So he confessed to be a believer. So he's telling me this stuff, and uh, and he's not, he's not saying that he's sorry for doing these things. He's, he's trying to like figure out how to fix this, make this relationship work or something. And I make the adulterous relationship work. Yeah, yeah. You know, and he's like, "It's weird with the <laughs> it's weird with the ex husband." I'm like, "I'm like, okay, stop, 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 stop." And so you know, I started going. In, you know, I, I essentially rebuked him because I, I if I had sat there and listened to all this and didn't rebuke him, yeah, I would have left there. Um, I didn't even read this, as, you know, but I knew that as a principle as, as a believer. Um, it would have just like I would have almost like kind of murdered him. And, you know, I let him walk away in, in what he's doing without rebuking him and calling him back to the tents. Yeah. So the whole two-hour flight was me going through scripture and like basically calling him to repent. <laughs> was he really though? You're stuck with me. Was he? So that's an interesting case. Was he really ignorant though that like adultery is wrong? No. I mean, that's kind of like even even atheists know that. I no, mean, no, no, no. No, he was no. I mean, but it was he, just you you needing to actually say, hey, look, uh, call him to account or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. It's, it's him being. Blinded by his circumstances and his desires. Yeah, making excuses. Making excuses. Sure. Self-bias. Self-bias, yeah. Self-bias, yeah. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, I'm, yeah, God's okay with me doing it because, yeah. you know, she's horrible to me. So, yeah. I can do it. 
Um, I had a question yeah. earlier about, so you were, you were pulling that, uh, that passage from Ezekiel and you were applying it to pastors and Christians today as well. I was wondering if you had a, a verse, you were talking about how Peter talked about it, do you have like any reference verses um, oh when I said Peter because Peter says let anyone who speaks speak as though it's the oracles of God um, the specific passage would be Ephesians 4 right so Ephesians 4 which I've been harping on all week um, is uh, talking about Jesus ascending to heaven and not leaving us as orphans he actually left the spirit but he leaves the spirit with us through the gifts he gives to the church which are Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Um, did you notice that I counted a, a finger that wasn't there? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, and he leaves them, the text says, for the equipping of the saints for the purpose of ministry. And then tells the saints, speak to one another, speak truth to one another in love. And then again repeats it, speak to one another, each one to his neighbor. Speak truth. Um, it's that idea that that it's not just the responsibility of, oh, the word of God to somehow convict someone. It's the word of God through the pastors, through the community, that is all now. Everyone's responsible now for your brother. You are your brother's keeper, and so you have things like, for instance, like in James, uh, let the one who who turns a brother from sin know that he has saved his life, and it's very ambiguous. Right. It's very ambiguous. It's like, well, has saved whose life? His life, the guy who's rebuking? Or the, or the life, his life, the guy who's sinning? And, it, and James, I think, leaves it ambiguous so that you realize well, it's both. Because you need to rebuke him and your life is in jeopardy now because you're actually not rebuking him. So rebuke him and you've saved his life, you've saved your life. So, yeah, and I mean, there are a lot of other passages, right? Like, if your brother's in sin, go to him. That's a general command to, to believers. Mm-hmm. I just was curious if you were likening our responsibility to that of Ezekiel's or actually, yes. like, this is our responsibility or else you, you know, Drake, for, if you were to walk away, you would be guilty of murder. Yes. Like yeah, I am saying, I am actually saying that we think it's not that big of a deal. And actually, according to God, it is like murder. And, um, and people who do it are like murderers. And that basically means that probably everyone in this room at one point in their life has actually been guilty of murder. Where so it's, it's a shocking Peter? thing. Brian, where is that in Peter? The oracles of God? No, where it says you saved his, his life. Oh, that's James. Oh, that's said, that that's at the end of James. Did you say five something? Yeah, it's James five. Near, yeah, it's near like the very end. Yeah. It might. Is it, is it the last verse? I sent that to someone who was rebuking me constantly. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I lived in New York. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's a great guy, by the way. He's super great. <laughs> I'm friends with him on Facebook. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I sent him that one. I'm like, thanks. <laughs> 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 That's a good time. I was trapped. <laughs> All right, anything else on that? It's a really important lesson, right? I mean... Great, we can stand there. Uh, All right, so now, uh, Amber, do you want to read the rest of three? Yeah. And the hand of the Lord was upon me there, and he said to me, 
Arise, go out into the valley, and there I will speak with you. So I arose and went out into the valley, and behold, the glory of the Lord stood there, like the glory that I had seen by the Shabar Canal, and I fell and I fell on my face. But the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet, and he spoke with me and said to me, Go, shut yourself within your house, and you, O son of man, behold, cord will be placed upon you, and you shall be bound with them, so that you cannot go out among the people. And I will make your tongue cling to the roof of your mouth, so that you may so that you shall be mute and unable to reprove them, for they are for they are for they are a rebellious house. When I speak with you, I will open your mouth, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, He who he who will hear, let him hear, and he who will refuse to hear, let him refuse. For they are oh my gosh. But they are a rebellious house. Okay. So this is very interesting. He just got done saying, um, you better rebuke them. Basically, you better warn them uh, or I'm going to require their blood from their hands. And now he's saying, I'm going to shut you up in this house and I'm not going to allow you to rebuke them. And you're just kind of like, huh? And what's going on is there's a bit of a paradox in Ezekiel to where God's going to be communicating through the, throughout the book that God wants to warn the people, but at the same time, he's so ticked at the people, he's going to withhold information from them as well. And even maybe give them false information through secondary uh, agents. That's later on. We'll talk about that a bit more as we go through the book. But um, it's that sort of tension. So God is going to open Ezekiel's mouth, even in this situation, but he's not going to allow Ezekiel to rebuke them or intercede for them because judgment is, is a foregone conclusion. We talked about this last week. If they were to repent, it's too late. God has made this decision. It's done. They will be actually enduring this judgment. Now, the individuals can save their lives by repenting still, and so God's still going to speak to them and warn them in that regard. So, yes, it is very confusing, but that's what's going on. It's this idea that God is almost resistant to tell them, but because he loves them still, which will also come out in the book, he is going to then also speak to them. So is that like he's, the judgment's coming on the nation? Yes. He's not going to warn the nation, but the individuals within the nation, because it talks later about right. the remnant. Right. They can repent, and they'll get the he, warning. He is, he is rebuking the nation. I mean, he's among the, the exiles here, though, right? So it's really the remnant among them. But even the exiles are not really believing his message. And so there are some who will listen, but, um, but yeah, the, the, as for the, as for Jerusalem, it's judged if there's no saving it now, this, that's why lady will make the comment. Even if Job were here, even if Noah were here, even if Daniel were in the city, I, I'm not going to save it. So I'll save just... them, but not the city, but that's the point though. I'll save the individuals, the righteous individuals, but not the city. So that just leaves you with God will uh, when and whatever said he's just going to decide right well whatever said he's the, the what he's going to speak through Ezekiel is going to be the judgment telling them what the judgment yeah. is but it's going to be God's going to decide what's said to who when and if and right it's just all in God's right sovereignty. and this is what's a first of what's called a sign act so if you'll notice um, who puts Ezekiel in this house, in this chapter? Ezekiel puts himself in there. They will. Go shut yourself in. They will put ropes on your body. 
I'm hearing answers, but nothing <laughs> complete. The spirit entered me. Who shuts him up in the house? And what verse is that? He says, go shut yourself up in the house. So go shut yourself up in the house. Is he the only one? You will be bound with him. The spirit sent So God shuts him up in the house. He shuts himself up in the house. And the people shut him up in the house. So this is going to mimic the exile. The, he's being exiled to the house. He's being excluded as the as Israel now will be ex- exiled and excluded. God has made the decision to exile them. They have exiled themselves through their idolatry. And Babylon is going to come and exile them. So he is a picture now of what's going to happen to Israel. If it was just himself, he could leave anytime he wanted. If someone else had captured him and bound him, he could escape. But because it's God himself and these other people, there is no escape from it. And so there's no escape from the judgment of exile. Hmm. Any comments on that? Yeah, Jesse. Um, <clears throat> I guess um, something else jumps out of me in this need to think. But, yeah, it's uh, probably wrong. Um, but uh, regarding the the mode of prophecy and God's word to the people and and Mm -hmm. how it comes yeah so um, I mean I I, like agreeing with everything you you said I I also see that God is saying um, you are not going to talk to the people right um so your your words are not your interpretation right. of what is going on in the community. Right. Um, you will be quiet, and I am going to speak for you. Right. Um, so that the words of Ezekiel are not Ezekiel's words; they're God's words. So right. You cannot right read the book of Ezekiel and say, "Well, this is Ezekiel like the liberals. This is Ezekiel's interpretation of what he sees going on yeah. in the community, and it could be wrong, it could be right. It was for that time or whatever. This right. is God speaking." Directly to the people, with the with the power uh, in a powerful speech act, so that the words that are spoken um, carry with them uh, their desired effect to either have the individual repent or to harden the individual. Right. So it's God. It's God speaking like in creation, right? Right. Or the, the voice of God carries with it not only the command but the uh, impetus and the power to bring about what is spoken. Right. And so... Yeah, spirit and the word go together, and spirit and the word go together to create, right? Right. And creation is not just, you know, I'm going to make some flowers. It's also to uh, destroy all the weeds. Right. So, um, yeah, that's what's going on in Ezekiel. Yeah, so that is right. So it's, they cannot, Ezekiel cannot intercede for them. He cannot reason with them with his own words. He's not allowed to do any of this. It's just God speaking, and when God does speak, it's, I'm going to destroy you, and I'm going to destroy the city. So there's no, hey, please repent um, so I can save the city and save you. It's like, no, I've already decided to destroy the city. It's, we're, we're done. I, I gave you hundreds of years of this garbage, and you didn't repent. And so this is, this is the judgment. We're, we're finally at it. This kind of reminds me of Psalms a bit, where David's praying to for for his for God's judgment on people, mm-hmm. and at the end of like the same chapter, he'll be like, "But 
or no, for reverse maybe, but then he would like pray for mercy, you know? So yeah. it would be like within the same chapter. I don't know which way it would go, but it'd be like judgment in one part and then like praying for mercy yeah. in another part. One of the minor prophets, and I'm a, I, I forget which one now actually, maybe you guys can uh, remember. But his, the beginning of the book is him praying for judgment upon the wicked. And then when God actually brings it about, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, please have mercy, God. Um, because he didn't actually realize how bad it was going to be. But I mean, this is, this is going to be, um, your women are going to be raped. They're going to be cut through. Your babies are going to have their heads bashed against the wall. Um, I'll, I'll show you when, when Jerusalem actually falls when we reach that chapter. I'll show you what the Assyrians and Babylonians did to people, and it is something out of like a Count Dracula movie. Um, it is really horrific, and it's real. They're real reliefs from Assyria and Babylon of what they did to people. They're like heads over here. There are people impaled over here. I mean, it's just um, it's it's brutal. It's brutal. They skinned people and then hung the skins on the wall. I mean, when you rebelled against them as a nation, they wanted to make sure that the other countries did not follow suit. So it was, uh, the Assyrians called it the ideology of terror, and the Babylonians basically adopted that, that same thing. All right, any more comments, questions about chapter three? Okay. Then we have like the coolest sign act coming up in four here. This is this is what I would I would want to do if I were a prophet is do this next thing. Um, who wants to read? Uh, who wants to read chapter four? April, thanks. <laughs> and all of chapter four. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And you, son of man, take a brick and lay it before you and engrave on it a city, even Jerusalem, and put siege works against it, and be, build a siege wall against it, and cast up a mound against it. Set camps also against it, and plant battering rams against it all around. And you, take an iron griddle and place it as an iron wall between you and the city, and set your face toward it, and let it be in a state of siege, and press the siege against it. This is a sign for the house of Israel. Then lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. For the number of the days that you lie on it, you shall bear their punishment. For I assign to you a number of days, 390 days, equal to the number of the years of their punishment. So long shall you bear the punishment of the house of Israel. And when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side, and bear the punishment of the house of Judah. Forty days I assign you, a day for each year. And you shall set your face toward the siege of Jerusalem, with your arm bared, and you shall prophesy against the city. And behold, I will place cords upon you, so that you cannot turn from one side to the other, till you have completed the days of your siege. And you, take wheat and barley, beans and lentils, millet and emmer, and put them into a single vessel, and make your bread from them. During the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days, you shall eat it, and your food that you eat shall be by weight, twenty shekels a day. From day to day you shall eat it, and water you shall drink by measure, the sixth part of a hen, from day to day you shall drink, and you shall eat it as a barley cake, baking it in their sight on human dung. And the Lord said, Thus shall the people of Israel eat their bread unclean, among the nations where I will drive them. Okay, actually, let's stop there for a minute. 
All right, so uh, this is the second sign act, and God basically tells them to build a toy fort and um, and make soldiers and like besiege it and all this sort of thing. These sign acts, I think, are uh, they're incredibly aggressive. It's the equivalent of let's say. You, the, the people are basically saying, no, God's not going to do this. God loves us. He has a wonderful plan for our life. He's not going to destroy his city. It's his temple. Uh, this is not going to happen. Uh, so you're wrong or whatever. And so God responds to that by basically saying, oh, okay. And he, it's almost like a little miniature play on, you know, it, it'd be the equivalent of saying, you know, God's going to destroy America. And America responds by saying, no, America is God's country. What are you talking about? It's great. You know, God bless America, blah, blah, blah. And then a prophet comes along and is like, okay. So he builds this, like, city, and he brings this, like, airplane over, and then he bombs it and blows it up, and he's like, that's you. Um, it's almost this forceful way of saying, almost like in your face, like, no, I am going to destroy it, and here's what it looks like. And so each of these things will be you're gonna you know, you're gonna make your food over human dung because you'll be unclean um, in the exile. You're not gonna be ritually clean anymore. Uh, you're gonna be bound whether you like it or not. You're gonna go where I tell you to go whether you like it or not, and that's gonna be it. So all of these things are gonna are, are gonna speak to the situation. Um, what do you think the pan Ezekiel supposed to put like a hot pan between himself? And uh, and this little fort that he's made that represents Jerusalem. What do you think that is? Like he's not going to look at it, or he's not going to. It's like a, he's blocked from it. Like God's not going to. Is that? Yeah. So Ezekiel and that would represent who? God. God. And he's not. He's got this this thing between them that he's not going right. to hear their. Right. So they're being destroyed through through siege, and he's not even gonna. He's gonna. There's a barrier to where he's not gonna help them at all. That's gonna be it. He's giving them over. Judgment is giving over to your enemies um, for your destruction. That's what judgment looks like. Now he switches from playing God in the role to playing an exile in the role or really playing Israel in the role by having to lay on the, his side, right, for all these days. Can you imagine having to lay on your side for all this time? A lot of scholars are like, you know, maybe it was just, it was just something you did every day. It wasn't like 24-7, you know, whatever. Who knows? But um, it still would be annoying to have to go out every day for 390 days and then go out every day for another 40 days. 430 days is the time period in which Israel is actually in Egypt. Um... A lot of scholars try to figure out what the 390 are, what the 40 are. Uh, I have like an argument on the blog a little bit if anybody wants to read that on, on the numbers or whatever. I think the 390 years is supposed to be from the time that the first temple was dedicated. Or I'm sorry, the, 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 so the first temple was dedicated and then you had Israel split after Solomon, right? So their judgment there, that was when the glory of the Lord came upon the temple but then the glory of the Lord was not with northern Israel. Why? Yeah, because they forsook the temple and they made their own their own two uh, sacred centers where they had the golden calf, right? So the glory of the Lord was not with northern Israel. That's the judgment of northern Israel for that, that time period. 
The second time period is the judgment of who? Judah. Judah. Um, but they're not judged for 40 years, right? What's the 40-year thing about? Yeah, a time of testing, right? So 40 days and 40 nights, that's the flood. Uh, 40 days is when Moses actually disappears on the mountain, and they're waiting, and incidentally they build a golden calf during that time because they don't think he's coming back. 40 years of the wilderness, time of testing for them. Uh, God actually calls it a time of testing that the, the wilderness journey was. Um, how many days does Jesus fast? Yeah, that's not literally 40 days, probably. That's just talking about the 40. He's, it's mimicking Israel being tested for 40 days. Nineveh is going to be destroyed in how much time? 40 days. So it's a time of testing and trial. And that refers to Judah's exile. All right, anything on that? Okay. All right, the, uh, the next thing then... Um, they're to actually make their, their, they have this scarce amount of food, right? These different like minerals. What do you think that's about? That they have like some lentils and then some grain. Well, they're mixing and... the grain. That's yeah, why clean, right? Well, because of, of poverty and right. Why, why would you mix grain together to make a loaf of bread? They don't have enough. Yeah, you don't have enough. So you got to take a little bit from here. So yeah. the idea is that they're not going to have very much. They're going to be impoverished, and they have to go on rations. So just a little bit of drink little bit of bread that's it there was a, a Jewish test I think the Jews uh, in I think it was the third century that that made this and try to feed it to a dog and even the dogs wouldn't eat it it was so gross and so it's basically saying you're gonna be impoverished and have to eat this like garbage food and they're gonna have to cook it over what human dung if you cook over human dung as an Israelite are you clean or unclean Unclean. So he's saying that you will be unclean to God in the exile, and that represents that whole thing. Now, we didn't. The part that we didn't read. Uh, let's see. What verse do you leave off? April is at twenty. No, um, no. Sorry, it's not. There's not a twenty and four. Four fourteen. All right. You want to read the rest? Then I said, Ah, Lord God, behold, I have never defiled myself. From my youth up till now, I have never eaten what died of itself or was torn by beasts, nor has tainted meat come into my mouth. Then he said to me, See, I assign to you cow's dung instead of human dung, on which you may prepare your bread. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, behold, I will break the supply of bread in Jerusalem. They shall eat bread by weight and with anxiety and they shall drink water by measure and in dismay. I will do this that they may lack bread and water and look at one another in dismay and rot away because of their punishment. Okay. So um, what a lot of scholars think of this is that God is really harsh toward all the exiles, but there will be a remnant that he allows to be clean. So Ezekiel protests, this protest that comes up, hey, I, I've never been unclean, you're going to make me unclean. God says, okay, then you can make it over cow's dung. So you'll still be impoverished, but I won't make you who are clean, unclean. Um, the rest will, in fact, be unclean, though. Because that's clean? <laughs> be, yeah, so it's not 
it's not clean in the sense of like, hey, let's cook our food oh, over no, cow dung. No, I know, but in this sense. Right. Like, so it's it's the human. No one is to actually come to contact with human feces uh, because it's considered unclean in the in Levitical code. <laughs> Which seems obvious, right? Uh, any sort of human fluid makes you unclean. That's why you have to yes. go out of the camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that the same thing. Any sort of excrement or you know, yeah. You want me to you name them? You want me to name them? No, that's okay. Excrement. Snot. <laughs> I use the word excrement. What do you have a problem with it? Come on. Of course. <laughs> um. And then, of course, you have the interpretation what it means. It means what we just said, that Jerusalem's going to have to undergo this. They're going to be impoverished because of it. So I don't know if this is a dumb question, but where is he doing this? Is he doing this in the house still or outside of the house? Uh, this is going to be outside of a house, not in the house. So th- there's different things going on at different times. He hasn't yet gone into the house. He's just been told to do that. Okay. Um, he's getting, this is all one prophecy so far that's coming. So from the time that he, uh, sits among them and he sees the glory of the Lord again, that we started reading from to to chapter eight will be a singular prophecy. And then a new prophecy will start and you'll get a new date. It'll be in like the sixth year and then, and, and it'll go forth like that. So this is all one thing that he's getting after this. He'll then go do it. Does he like, you get a picture like he's on the border between Israel and Judah. Uh, no. So he's actually, he's in exile, like he's in Babylon. Um, so he's, it's, there's, and Babylon doesn't border Israel anyway. You'd have to look across the entire, like, uh, Arabian desert to, uh, to get there. So, no, he's not on, he's actually in Babylon fully. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, actually, Brian, one yeah. So earlier you, because we were going over the 40 days and the numbers, you had mentioned that, like, not being literal for when like Christ was fasting, right? It was a representation of exile. So like, how would you? So what? How would you explain that? Then? Like, what does that mean exactly? Like, so, so in in uh, the Gospels, Christ is is Israel. Um, the Gospel writers are making the argument that what Israel was supposed to be, the true Israel, that's who Christ is. That's why he goes down to Egypt, then he comes out of Egypt, and that passage that normally would be associated with Israel, out of Egypt I called my son, is then applied to him, because he's Israel. So he's undergoing the temptations that Israel underwent in the wilderness, so Israel was, was tempted in the wilderness, so he's tempted in the wilderness. Israel fails in the wilderness, but he actually succeeds. So where Israel fails, because he's the true Israel, he actually accomplishes it. And the gospel authors are essentially making that argument because anyone then linked to Christ through faith is Israel because he's true Israel. And it has nothing to do with whether you're Jewish. Um, so that, that's why they make that argument. I mean, to us, it's kind of like, you know, we don't get... But in the early days, it was kind of like, no, you had to be Jewish in order to be saved. And the gospel writers are making the argument, no, you need to be linked to Jesus in order to be saved because he's true Israel that will actually, you know, endure. Because I think a lot of times, like, 40 days is, like, a lot of people take it as it's literally, right. like, oh, it's week 40 days, but I didn't realize it's, like, Right. Yeah, they're you know, like, oh, I'm going to try to fast for 40 days. Uh-huh. And then, like, you know, five days later, they're like, I'm dying. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's probably a symbolic number to link him to Israel in that way. He's living as a man. We, we kind of talked about this 
Sunday or whatever, just briefly or whatever. But he's he needs to live as a man. He's not using his divine attributes to sustain himself, which is what the devil's actually trying to get him to do, right? It's like, hey, turn this rock into bread. You can last longer. And it's like, no, he can't do it because the father did not allow him to turn it into bread. He's trying to get him to basically not live as a man anymore and to take his glory early, which is why he offers him the kingdom early, like all that. He's trying to, he wants him to get to glory early without going to the cross, without submitting to the Father, and that's what he's rejecting. So we can safely say that Jesus endured that temptation as a man, but then you disagree with Bill Johnson, let's say, who says that he performed all those miracles as a man 100%. No, I would agree with that, that he is performing, well, the Father and the Spirit are performing through him because he's living as a man. He could do all of them himself as God, but he's choosing not to uh, exercise his attributes, which is why he doesn't know things sometimes. He says only the Father knows. He's limiting his knowledge to human knowledge. That's why he can grow in wisdom and, and knowledge, because he's living as a human, as a kid. Um, so he's not accessing the abilities he has because he's trying to live as we live. The, the whole point the whole point is that he's showing that he, as the second Adam, as a human, you can actually live um, in God by faith and actually uh, uh, accomplish perfection as a human being. Um, he does that for us, of course. We can't do that because we already have a sin nature and whatnot. But... Um, but he's living the life that Adam didn't live. If he suddenly uses his divine attributes, he's no longer living the life that Adam lived, and he's not living as us either. He's enduring temptation, but so what? Why would that give us any hope that we can overcome temptation because he overcame temptation? He's God. But if he's not actually using his attributes and he's relying on the Father to overcome temptation, well, we have that same hope. Yes, but then when it comes to like, signs and wonders and whatnot. Right. That's all the Father. That's all. That's why he says everything that I've shown you is from the Father. Um, he, he, you know, so it's, it's the Father in me. It's the Father speaking. These are the words of the Father. It's the, the works of the Father. Um, he's not doing them himself um, to show that basically you can rely upon the Father and, and do these things. So he's living totally as a man. Actually, I had a question along those lines then. So it... You're not allowed to ask questions. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. It, is it right then to say that because a lot of a lot of pastors will preach the miracles, this miracle is to show Jesus' deity, right? To prove that Jesus was God. And yeah, seems, I forget what they're called. Um, oh, what are they called? They're called certain kinds of miracles that, that testify to his, his deity. As opposed to other types of miracles. Right, yeah. I forget what it is. There's a specific name to it. So how would you tell the difference? In, I mean, because I mean, you know, um, Elisha raises someone from the dead, right? right? And like, there's all sorts of that. So, a lot of like, most of Jesus's miracles are recapitulations of miracles already performed. Yeah, but Elijah doesn't raise himself from the dead. Right, right. <laughs> so how do you, how do you tell between uh, miracles designed to show the deity of Christ versus miracles that are? Oh, I don't. People make that distinction. Oh. I don't think... Okay. I don't think... I think the miracle showing that Jesus is divine is the Father testifying of the Son, which is what the Son says. The Father, I'm not testifying of myself. The right. Father testifies of me. Therefore, my testimony is true. So he's testifying that the Son is, in fact, divine 
and that his words that he's divine and the Messiah are true. The Father's testifying of that. Right. The Son isn't doing that. So, um... But when the Father enables other people in the scriptures to perform miracles, he's not... Yeah, but they're not saying, I am. They're not right. saying they're Yahweh. So he is. So he's testifying that the words are true. Right. Yeah, right? that's the point. So, yeah. yeah. So his, like, yeah, I mean, all... God raises the dead in other places in scripture. The issue is, is that God is raising the dead through Christ, who just said he was Yahweh. Right. So that's a totally different thing. I mean, everybody else would be stoned for that. They were right to pick up stones to kill him. Um, and, uh, you know, but they were wrong in the sense that he actually was God and the Father was testifying. That's why he says, many good works I've shown you from the Father. For which one of them are you stoning me? And he says, not for the works you've done, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself out to be God. So when you're preaching through miracles, it would be more appropriate to say these miracles are test are are showing that his words are true. And right. his words said he was God. Right. It's not that the miracles themselves are showing that he's God. Right. He Although I would say the Father does do certain things with him, like walking on water, for instance, that's deity. Right. So the Father is having him do a miracle that shows that he's God. Um that 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 goes back very ancient in the whole culture of understanding the storm god is the most powerful, the water is like the enemy that the storm god overcomes, and so for him to actually walk over water is saying he's deity. And that's in, I think it's in every gospel. So what do you make of this whole thing coming out of G3 with, like, the Jesus... <laughs> I, I'm just going to assume it's bad because you said... No, I'm just joking. Yeah, that Jesus didn't know that he was divine and that somehow the transfiguration was also for Jesus's benefit to fully understand. Yeah, I don't I don't think that's when true. I, that that sounds very gnostic to me yeah. because the gnostic adoptionism is it that Jesus didn't know. Crazy. Yeah, it sounds very gnostic. Yeah. 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 John, John the Baptist knows who he is immediately. Why would Jesus not know? He tells Mary that the angel tells Mary who he is. Why would he not testify to Jesus who he is? So do I think that Jesus needs to be told by the Father? Yeah, I just think that he was told immediately and knows right away. I think the pastor said he's like, we talked about this in Sunday school. He prepped my son borderline It sounds, it's, it's, it is borderline Gnostic. Okay. Because in the Gnostic view, in fact, if you, there's a Jesus movie where he's like a kid and there's a lot of Gnosticism in it. Jesus doesn't know that he's the Messiah yet. That That's a very Gnostic thing because... In, in Gnosticism, he's all of us are realizing that we're divine. Like all of us don't know, and we have to realize. And so Jesus is that same way. But Orthodox Christianity, and biblically speaking, that doesn't seem to be the case. He seems to know who he is right away. Even at, like you, somebody mentioned when he was twelve, and they lose him. He's like, "Didn't you know that I'd be in my father's house?" Like he knows who he is, even though he's still growing in wisdom and understanding. He knows who he is as as the son. They, they remove that. Yeah, they removed it from year three, but I was asking because it came up in Sunday school when yeah. Jeff got back from G three and we were talking yeah. about it in Sunday school. Oh, okay. Like, this sounds really crazy. So I was just. You guys didn't adopt it, did you? No, 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 no. It wasn't. No, just explaining what it what was. I'm sorry. Being in Ezekiel in the room, I'm going to have to rebuke you now for heresy. So I'm just trying to you know save your life, but. <laughs> yeah, that's how you should approach someone. This is really about me. Uh, 
I don't really care about you, but I don't want to die. So. All right. Anything on these chapters? We're gonna we're gonna stop there. Uh, there is another sign act coming up where he you know does the thing, but he's gonna explain it throughout six and seven, and then we'll be done with the first prophecy that he gives or the first vision that he's giving to Ezekiel for the people. I just had a quick point of clarification. Yeah. Verse four, April's translation has punishment and lay the and mine has iniquity. Lie on your left side and lay on the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. That seems like quite a bit of a difference in idea. Verse 4 of chapter 4. Oh, okay. I was looking at verse 5. Let's see. Oh, sorry. I'm in chapter 5. That's why I'm like, what? And while you're at it, can you explain, like, what is he, what is the, what is placed upon what? Like, is he lying on on the brick? Or like, or is he lying on the iron? Or? <laughs> <laughs> he's got the tile over there, and he's got the iron up there, and he's facing that way. I mean, from the language, it sounds like he's lying on the iron wall that he right. makes. Right, sounds uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah that's, that's not but it doesn't quite make sense what's like. It's the city. I know. It's like there's the city, and then there's the iron plate, and then he's on top of the plate. Well, it depends how you take it. I didn't even ask this question when I was studying this passage, but it might be that the it is referring to the side that he's laying on. It has nothing to do with the actual iron plate. Um, so it depends on whether you link three with four, or if four is a different than three. Because in in Three, he's God playing the role of God in that. In four, he's actually playing the role of Israel and Judah. So it may be that, he, that the it is just the side that he's laying on and not. So it says, lie on your left side and place the punishment of the house of Israel upon it. So place the punishment upon the house of Israel or upon his side? Right, on the house of Israel. Okay. But, I mean, you could take it as the plate if you wanted to take it. And it's possible to link them if you do that and say that you're writing, on the, uh, writing it on the plate or something. No, I think it's saying it's put it on your side. <laughs> yeah, it may, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's hard to say. It might be, did, you know, Adam and Eve have a navel type question. <laughs> we can thank Jesse Caldwell for that one. <laughs> so the thing is, though, if you go back to what you said, the scholars were saying about the days and if he actually laid there... Then it says at the end, though, I, I will place cords upon you so that you cannot turn from one side to another. Right. So they, what they're saying is, is they don't know if that's each day that's being done or if it's just one time and then he's there for 430 days. Jeez. I, obviously, he has, to, he has to have the break in order to turn the other way, right? I mean, at least he's between the 390 and the 40. But Emmanuel, your Jesse Caldwell question is not lost on me. <laughs> well, um, she had, I think her question, the iniquity and punishment thing. Oh, and the, word, the word is for iniquity, yeah. So iniquity. Then, so it, it literally is to bear their iniquity. Bear their sin. Yes. But here, but, so this is important. Bear their iniquity can mean you're atoning for it. Or bear their iniquity means they're, gonna, they're being punished for it. So if it right, so if he's Israel, bearing their iniquity means this is representing their punishment. He's not he's not atoning for their punishment because if that's true, they wouldn't be punished. They wouldn't have gone in exile. Jerusalem wouldn't be destroyed. 
but they are going to be punished. So he's not taking their iniquity in the sense that, like, Christ take, bears our iniquity. He's bearing it, meaning that he's actually being punished for the iniquity in this sign act, the way that Israel will be punished for it. it meaning they'll be bound and exiled and the glory of God will be taken from them. So in, in um, where it talks about the ropes, in the other verse that it talked about the ropes, can you look at that as saying that he's bound in that position until that judgment is full? And that's why Well, you can, but I'm just, there's nothing that says that there's nothing that says that he is. So it's sort of like, no, is this something that's just happening on a daily basis, or is it just 24-7 that he is? We, we just don't know. The, po- the point is, is your sign and judgment's coming. Right. Ba- basically act out this play in front of Israel, in front of the exiles, so they know that, that this is coming. Even if they don't believe it, I'm going to shove it in their face through all these like sign acts. He's the only prophet that really does this. God makes him play it out in front of them in some sort of way by making this model city, by like, you know, later on he's going to he's gonna have him like carry this huge backpack and then like dig a, a hole through the wall and then go out and it's like, it would be so weird. Like it's just, it's not like this would be normal back then either. It would just be like, what is this guy doing? It's like a freak or something. I mean, it would just be weird. Well, th- yeah, but that's not a sign act he's performing in front of everyone. He's that's that's a an, a, a uh, an example or a representative thing that's being done. But he's actually like it's almost like these are little plays that are being performed in front of everyone. Is there some significance to the fact that he's laying down that versus sitting or standing? Just so he can be eye level with the model. So let's just go with that. I think that, I think that it's a very Wait, it's a small city, Jesse. You're on now. You're in a vulnerable position. It's the most vulnerable position you can be in, really, right? When you're laying down. You're I mean, now we're all just speculating. Who knows? Yeah, well, that's the thing. That's so, the knows. yeah. I don't know, Jesse. It could be. I just maybe, remember. Maybe, Jessie. maybe not. I just remember Tom and Jerry, and Tom will get down there and he goes through the hole. And now we're really off. <laughs> that big old eye out there. <laughs> I just think about death when I, when I like. Um, oh, because he's lying down? Yeah. Well, the exile itself is death. Um, so that's important to understand is that, you know, if you think about it, for instance, that look, when you're unclean in the camp, where do you go? Outside, Outside the camp. Where did Adam and Eve go? Outside, Outside the garden. Um, where does Israel have to go? Where did the Canaanites have to go? Driven outside the land. Where does Israel have to go? I'm guessing outside. There you go. I want to name everyone, April. I want to name every time. That's why they Right. Jesus was crucified outside the city. Hell is outside the created order. Uh, it's banishment. That is death. That's why it's called the second death. Not because you your soul ends or something, but because you are banished for a second time and eternally. That's why it's called that. So it's death is banishment from the land of the living, from the created order. And that's what exile is. I was going to say something off of what you guys said, and now I cannot remember what it was. I don't know. Oh, well. All right. 
I'll blame Jesse for that one. <laughs> His stand lying thing came up right right at the moment when I was about to say it. And it was really profound. It was probably going to change your lives. But <laughs> All right, anything else on these chapters? Is this helpful for you? Like, the, you know, Ezekiel, a lot of people don't read it. They think it's irrelevant. But I personally think that this is extremely relevant for us. Will God exile us as Christians if, in fact, we turn and, instead of following him, decide to just follow the devil and do and live wickedly? Come to the temptations of the world or pleasure or... Well, yeah, I mean, it's apostasy, right? I mean, if we, if we end up, they're in apostasy, they're in exile. If we're in apostasy, the same thing. And you'll have Christians today say, no, absolutely not. Once saved, always saved. Right. God is not going to exile. Now, it's true that the elect will persevere. That's true. But they persevere in the faith. If you don't persevere, that means you're not elect. So it's real important to understand, if you commit apostasy, don't do what these people are doing and say, no, no, God loves us. He would never bring judgment on us. The reason why I think this exists for us with Israel is to let us know, and God's going to say this to them, that I wasn't just, my, my warnings were not empty, he says. I'm not just saying this and then I'm not going to do it. Hell is real. My judgment is real. It's not an empty boast. If you find yourself in sin and you're not going to repent, my judgment is going to come and I am going to do it. And it may be horrible, but it's going to be horrible and I'm going to do it anyway. A lot of people are like, no, God would never do anything that awful. It's like, no, he's bashing the heads of babies on walls. Yes, he will do it. That's how holy God is. That's why this book starts out with this vision of God in this absolute holiness and holy other beauty that we as ugly sinners don't understand and don't get. Even as reformed people, we do not get how holy God is. He hates sin and what is dark and death so much that he wants to absolutely destroy it and get rid of it. Now, we're also going to learn in the book, though, as we go along, that his love is so great that he will not abandon all humanity to destruction, but he actually, because of that, he's going to uh, he's going to save his people, even in the midst of their sin. He's gonna he's gonna end up saying, not because you did something great, but because I love you, I'm gonna save you. But it's very important for us to not take God's holiness for granted and think that oh well, yeah, he's not gonna do that to me. I can go ahead and play around with sin when in fact you cannot play around with sin. Get out of it immediately. All right, anything else? Like my switch? <laughs> All right, Drake, you want to pray for us? Sure. Father, thank you for allowing us to gather here and uh, study your word and uh, dig deep into these difficult passages and this difficult book. And I pray that we take these things uh, that we've discussed and, and apply these things. And uh, as a community, speak them, speak about them after today. And, uh, and grow in, in our, uh, both our relationships with each other and, and with you. Uh, pray for safety as everyone leaves here tonight back to their homes. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Yeah.